from the back of your bulletin uh, will get you the, the info that you need to, to do that. We're in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So you can go ahead and make your way there in your Bibles. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Annie mentioned, page 810 uh, is where those are. And as you've heard uh, us allude to a couple times now, as we begin this new year, we're kicking off a month of prayer and awareness for mercy and justice issues that exist in our world today. Uh, This is something that we did, if you were with us a year ago, we did this last January as well. Uh, And it's something that, from a lot of feedback that that I heard from you, uh, and just even what what I enjoyed about it, I think it's going to be a really helpful rhythm for us to, to start a new year thinking about the things that are going on in the world around us and how God might be calling us to serve in some specific ways there. If you've been uh, here at Liberty for for more than a few weeks, you will have heard me or someone else at some point share with you the vision of our church. And our vision of our church at Liberty is that we exist to live and to speak and to serve as the very presence of Jesus for the Harrisburg region. And we do that so that together we might enjoy and share in the freedom of of the gospel, of the, of the good news of Jesus. But the thing about that vision, to live that way, to live and speak and serve as Jesus' presence, that has to flow from a, our own experience of the presence of Jesus. We can't live and speak and serve as his presence if we haven't experienced it and aren't experiencing it ourselves. It has to flow from our own experience of a relationship with him. And there's something about serving as the presence of Jesus that is different and distinct from other efforts to care for and to serve and to do good in the world. So hopefully today and throughout this month, you'll you'll hear that. That will become more and more apparent to all of us. As we experience the presence of Jesus, as we taste and, and see that the Lord is good, as the psalmist says, as we are transformed by our own relationship with him, our response then, in light of all of those things, is to be moved outward with this posture of love and this posture of compassion and mercy for people in our world. So it's this inward transformation that leads to this outward response. And that's perhaps familiar to you, but it's really essential that we, that we put that in its place, that we have that in its place in our own heart and mind. Otherwise, we'll, we'll get ahead of ourselves and we'll do some goofy things with, it, with pursuing issues of, of mercy and justice. It's really the vertical relationship between us and God that enables, that propels, that sustains these horizontal relationships of compassion and care and and love for other people. So over these next few weeks, we're going to talk about uh, human trafficking. We're going to talk about reconciliation. We're going to talk about hunger and homelessness. And then we'll talk a little bit about what our response might look like to the Syrian refugee crisis. We've mentioned that briefly a couple times in the past. We'll we'll look at that again uh, during this month. So my hope is that by February 1st, we've solved all the world's problems. And none of these things are issues anymore. Okay? Now, we'll, we'll begin and, and really reopen for many of us these discussions that will really be lifelong pursuits for us. And this morning, before we get into any of those specific topics, I really just want to set the stage. So if you've been with us during the Advent season, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. We spent uh, the Advent weeks in the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel From now until Easter, and then even a little bit beyond, we're going to continue in Matthew's Gospel, just hitting selected passages from his Gospel. And where we find ourselves for this month of prayer and awareness is one of Jesus' most famous discourses in all of Scripture, which is known to many of us as the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. 
And this is a, a really incredibly rich passage of Scripture. And it contains some very relevant, some very applicable texts that, that are helpful for us to consider when thinking about living and speaking and serving as Jesus' presence. So today, just four verses to lay a foundation for us for the rest of the month. These, I think, really are foundational for any discussion about mercy and justice issues and, and living as the presence of Jesus. Because that pursuit of living that way isn't something that we just made up. It isn't something that we just decided was a good idea because our culture decided it was a good idea. It actually is part of our identity and part of our mission as Jesus' followers in, in the world. So we're going to read about that this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Uh, you can follow along with me here as I read. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for Jesus, for your teaching your disciples and for giving us the ability to listen in on that and to learn from that ourselves. And we pray this morning and this month that you would begin and continue to stir in us a desire to offer and extend the very same mercy that you have given us. As Alethea said, we would see that, that you have given us second and fourth and fiftieth chances. And that that's completely because of your, your mercy and your compassion and your love for us. And you have that same love and compassion and mercy for others. So move us outward as your hands and feet, as your presence with that same mercy. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So this, this passage is near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching his disciples. There's this huge crowd that gathers around to listen in, but the teaching is really directed at his followers, people who are currently his followers, people who will be his followers. And he tells them that they are meant to be a presence in the world. Two main things about that presence that we're going to see in these verses. One is that Christians are meant to be a beneficial presence in the world. Christians are a beneficial presence. Second, Christians are a distinctive presence. And before we, we jump into the first point there, just let's talk about this for a second. This is not a particularly difficult concept to grasp. The Christians are meant to be a benefit to the world. The Christians are meant to be distinct in some way in the world. If you've been around the church at all, you've probably heard that. You've probably heard that a thousand times in different ways over the course of your experience with the church. And as Jesus says it, as he paints this picture, it's really compelling like, I read Matthew 5, and particularly verses 13 through 16, and I say, yeah, I want that. I want to be salt and light. I want to serve in this way in the world. And yet, there is something in us that will rise up in resistance to actually living this way. For me, as, as I'm entering this month of prayer and awareness with you, I'm immediately confronted with some truths about myself that I wish weren't true, but that are, and that are a resistance in me to being faithful to what Jesus says here. One is that I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert, and perhaps many of you can 
can associate yourselves uh, the same way, can, can resonate with that. And, and being an introvert, I think, makes faithfulness to Jesus in this specific way feel daunting and exhausting. Um, living this kind of outwardly focused life, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging for every single person. It's going to grate against all of us in some way, multiple ways. But I do think there are some specific challenges for this outward call of Jesus for introverts. But fellow introverts, I want you to hear me on this. That, that does not give us an excuse. It doesn't give us an excuse not to, to pursue this. And, and grateful as we might be for our extroverted friends and family members, it's not a, a matter of like outsourcing the outward stuff to the extroverts, and we'll focus on like reading our Bible and praying inwardly. At the same time we, that we can't make excuses, this is, all, this is also not a matter of, of sin. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge that, that this is just a matter of personality, of how we're wired differently and how, how certain things energize some of us and drain us. And because we're wired differently, I think if you are introverted like I am, it's important to go into texts like this and recognize that it will perhaps feel more daunting and more sacrificial to pursue living in this way and to prepare yourself for that. The other truth that I'm confronted with about myself when I read this text is that I'm selfish. And where being an introvert is just a matter of personality, being selfish has everything to do with with my sin. The honest truth, even though I wish this was not true, is that I care more about myself, and I care more about my own comfort, and I care more about my own preferences than I do about living this way as as a beneficial and as a distinctive presence in the world. And that was once again illustrated for me uh, over Christmas, just a a week or so ago. Um, As many of you know, Shay and I and our girls were down in Texas visiting with family there. And on the night of December 23rd, uh, stomach virus swept the the household and family. So everybody that was staying in the house, minus two of like ten, went down over the course of the next several hours with, with the stomach flu. Um, by some miracle, I was one of the two that, that avoided it. But that meant for me that the next 48 hours were spent as being a nurse to all the people that, that, that went down. So I have, an, I have an increased and renewed appreciation for all of you who are in the medical professions and deal with bodily fluids and all that kind of stuff. More than I ever wanted to deal with that in that, those 48 hours. But here's the thing. In that moment, I had before me an opportunity to serve and to be compassionate and to care for family members, not even strangers, family members, out of compassion, out of love, out of selflessness. Instead, I found myself just frustrated to no end because it was different than what I wanted or expected from Christmas. I wanted to be unplugged. I wanted to be disconnected. I wanted to be selfish. And so instead of this opportunity to step into serving people compassionately and with love, extending the mercy of Jesus to people, I was begrudgingly full of self-pity and served out of obligation. It's the best I could muster up. Maybe you can relate to either of those things, introversion, selfishness. Maybe there's other things for you that you see as a hindrance or an obstacle to this. I share that because I want to invite you to wrestle with not only what it looks like to live as salt and light. I want, I want you to wrestle with that as we encounter this text. I also want you to wrestle with the hindrances and the obstacles that stop you from doing that. Because the reality is that anybody can decide, particularly in the new year when we're given to resolutions that we start for like five seconds and then stop, 
we can, we can muster up enough energy to like spend a month of prayer and awareness and think about issues in the world and then just let it peter out after that. But if the goal is actually to live this out as part of our identity and part of our mission, then to become, and to become people of mercy and justice rather than just to do a month of mercy and justice, then we're going to have to confront whatever the obstacles are, whatever the hindrances are in us to living this way as a lifestyle. So with that in mind... Let's move into these two points. The first one being that Christians are meant to be a beneficial presence in the world. During these same years that that Matthew is serving as an apostle in the early church, there's a Roman author and philosopher named Pliny the Elder. And in one of his writings, he says this, Nothing is more useful than salt or sunshine. Nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. Now, you and I live in a day where we have so many amenities that we just take a lot for for granted. But in the first century, pre-electricity, pre-central heating, pre-refrigerators, things like that, there were few things more useful or more beneficial than salt and sunshine. So it's not at all surprising that Jesus then uses those two things as metaphors for what he's going to call his people to do and to be in the world. Christians are meant to be of use. They're meant to be of benefit to the world that they inhabit. Salt, in Jesus' day, was primarily used as a preservative. So you'd rub salt on raw meat, for example, and it would make the meat last longer. It would delay the process of that meat decaying. Salt is also a flavoring agent, and that's the, the use of salt that you and I are much more familiar with. We're actually way too familiar with that in the United States. There was a study that I read this week from the Center for Disease Control, and they said that 9 out of 10 of our kids take in way too much salt. This study wasn't even specifically about kids. It was about just salt consumption in the U.S. They didn't even mention adults, which leads me to believe they've just kind of given up on the rest of us. <laughs> They're just like, well, we'll get them next generation. This is not happening this time around. So salt preserves, salt flavors. Light illumines. It makes possible to see in the midst of the darkness. And this time of year in particular, I am grateful for light, more than I am at other times of year, when the days get shorter and it gets dark at 5 o'clock, I appreciate sunshine, I appreciate electricity more than I do, say, in the summertime. Jesus here speaks of Christians as both a lamp in a house and a city on a hill. And what he's saying there is that at night, you put a lamp in a house so that the people in that house can see. And it's going to defeat the purpose to, to get that lamp all set up and then to put something over it that covers it. It has no use at all anymore when you do that. But there's also a collective impact of a whole community of light that Jesus refers to here. That's the city on a hill. And a city on a hill is something that would be visible for miles around, and especially visible at night, when the collective lights of all of the homes from that city are joined together in one big beacon of light. Now this breaks down immediately in some ways, but when I read that this past week, it made me think about Las Vegas. Okay, stay with me on that. Stay with me. During a break from college, a couple of friends and I drove across the country from Kansas City to Los Angeles. And we drove through the night. Uh, around 3 a.m., we were in the middle of the Nevada desert. And it was pitch black all around. It had been pitch black for several hours at that point, all through parts of Utah and, and through Nevada. And all of a sudden, driving in the desert, we crest a hill... And there's this flood of light before us. 
And it was like this gigantic spotlight. You know when, when like a, a company does like a grand opening and they put those spotlights out? It was like a gigantic one of those in the middle of the desert. And it stood out as this huge contrast to the darkness that was all around in every single direction. So what we, what we associate with Las Vegas is really in many ways like the opposite of what Jesus is calling us to, to do and be here. So I, I get that. But seeing that city for me for the first time reminds me of both the beauty and the functionality of what a city of light can do and can be. It stands out in the darkness. And as it stands out, it creates this sense of awe in us. It's beautiful to see that when you come out of the darkness and see a beacon of light in the middle of a valley or on a hill, as Jesus would say here. It's also functional. It shows us where to go. It shows us how to get there. And what we got to see in the Sermon on the Mount is that to be salt and light in the world is our identity. And it's our mission. It's both. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells his followers, I, Jesus, I am the light of the world. But here in Matthew's Gospel, he's saying to his followers, you are the light of the world. And in other words, what Jesus is saying there is that he's sending his disciples to be the very thing that he himself is. Light in the midst of of the darkness. What we do as Christians, what we are called to do and be is an extension of of what Jesus himself was and is as he came into the world. So the big idea here is this. Christians are meant to be a benefit and beneficial to the world. Like salt, we preserve and we prevent decay. So the the sin that exists in humanity, the sin that exists in our hearts, the sin that exists in the world around us, that has fractured and that has corrupted every aspect of God's good creation. But just as God does not abandon his creation to the fracture, to the corruption, nor do we as Christians abandon our world to that decay either. Christians prevent decay. We preserve decay. We restore. We participate in Jesus' work of making all things new. And like light, we shine in the darkness. And we push back what is dark in the world. We push back the murder and the the hatred and the oppression and the slavery to sin in whatever form it comes. We read in our celebration of Advent together that the people are walking in darkness. The, the default of the human experience because of sin is darkness. And Jesus, the light, has come. He's entered into the darkness, and then he now is sending his people as that same light into the darkness. And as the light that illumines, we show people, we show the world what is true and what is a lie. And we show the world what is good and what is evil. And we invite others, we draw others into the light just as we have been drawn into the light of of Jesus. Historically, uh, in spite of all of the flaws and all of the shortcomings and all the gigantic, catastrophic errors committed by Christians in the history of the world, Christians are actually known in history for being exactly these kinds of people. There's a great article in the New York Times on Christmas Day called The Christmas Revolution. I would encourage you to to read it if you didn't get a chance to. And in it, the author, a man named Peter Weiner, he says this. He says, We moderns assume that compassion for the poor and the marginalized is natural and universal. But actually, we think in that humanistic manner in large measure because of Christianity. And he then quotes a pastor who's also a friend of his who said, what Christianity did is to transform our way of thinking about the poor and the sick 
and to create an, an entirely different cultural given. It created an entirely different cultural given. And I would submit to you that that is what it looks like to impact the world as salt and light, to preserve, to flavor, to push back what is dark, to do that so much so that over time you actually change what is culturally normal and what is culturally acceptable in a way that mirrors the very heart of God himself. So a question for us to consider as we think about this idea that Christians are meant to be beneficial. Would our communities and would our neighborhoods and would our workplaces, would they feel an adverse impact if the Christians of Liberty Church weren't around anymore? And I'm I'm asking that question in a specific way. I don't so much mean like the institution of Liberty Church. I mean us as people. Would we as the Christians of this church, would our communities notice if we all of a sudden just didn't exist here anymore? We all moved at the same exact time and left. Would would our neighborhoods feel that? That's, That's not the only question that's important to ask when we think about faithfulness to Jesus. I think it's a helpful question to ask when we think about this idea of being beneficial to our, to our world. The second thing we see from this text is that Christians are called to be a distinctive presence in the world. And Jesus says something that's really key in verse 13 here. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's an interesting thing that Jesus does there. I mean, chemically speaking, salt cannot cease to be salt. Right? Salt is salt. But, according to a lot of historians, it wasn't uncommon in the first century to find salt in this region that contained a lot of impurities and that could become diluted down to the point that it was no longer effective as salt anymore. And what Jesus is getting at here is that his followers are meant to be a distinct presence in the world and to maintain some measure of distinctiveness. So as Christians, what he's saying there is that we're meant to be present in the world without becoming exactly like the world. And the idea there is that that Christians can't be the preservative and the flavor of salt if they have taken on the characteristics of the world that needs the preservation, that needs the flavoring. And Christians can't be light if they've taken on the characteristics of the darkness. So this is a really critical point and one that I think is really worth us wrestling deeply with as we go into a a month of prayer and awareness for mercy and justice issues. If we lose what is distinctly Christian about the Christian faith, then we lose the fullness of the benefit that we are meant to be as Christians in the world. And I would submit this to you as well. What the world really needs is not just more people who care about causes and participate in causes. Of course, we need more people like that. But what the world really needs are people who have received the mercy of Jesus and then living lives of merciful participation in the world in these distinctively Christian ways. I think that's what the world really needs from you and me. So the question that I hope then is, is kind of stirring up in you then is, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What, is the, what are the distinctive differences? And what can Christians contribute that other people who do good in our world cannot? There are probably many answers to that. I just want to mention briefly a couple of those answers. It has to do with our words, our hopes, and our results. 
Distinct words, distinct hopes, distinct results. So first, I think this has a lot to do with distinct words. Uh, A distinctively Christian presence in the world often means that we do exactly the same actions as other people who care about humanitarian causes. It's just that we do them with radically different explanations for why we're doing them. Like if someone asks me why I should care about other people, and they say something like, well, the general goodness of humanity, I actually don't believe because of sin in the general goodness of humanity. I believe in the brokenness of humanity. I believe in the depravity of humanity. But you know what else I believe in? I believe that people all have inherent dignity and worth because they're created as image bearers of God. And if I lose that belief, I therefore lose my foundation for caring about people. A big one, at least. A big foundation for caring about them. And I also believe that Jesus is doing this great work of redeeming and renewing what is broken, what is fractured, what is depraved in the world. That's my explanation for why, for why I participate in these things. Perhaps it's the very same actions accompanied by distinct words of care and concern. So it's not just meeting tangible needs, although we need to meet tangible needs. It's, it's offering ourselves with our words and with our lives in a relationship. So it's not just giving food to the hungry and then walking away, but giving food and then perhaps sitting with a person and listening to their, to their life and their story. And where it's appropriate, offering them your story and inviting them into your life. What I've just described there about distinct words really is, another way we could talk about that is to say evangelism. Uh, it's just that when we say evangelism, almost everybody gets a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit squeamish. Uh, people in our culture get uncomfortable because many have the impression that all that Christians care about is, are, are conversions. That all we care about is people who are not Christians becoming Christians. And unfortunately, we've played into that stereotype in many ways. And that means that if someone speaks to another person about Jesus, the guards go up quickly and people begin to feel like some kind of project or some kind of trophy rather than a, a human being. And then precisely because of that, maybe we've experienced that personally as we've tried to, to share words like this in our culture, Christians then get uncomfortable when we talk about evangelism. And I understand that. I feel exactly that same thing. We don't want to be known as people who only care about conversions. But what I would say to you this morning is that it is critical if we're going to be a distinctive presence in the world. Words are critical to that. And perhaps you've heard uh, a famous quote by a man named St. Francis of Assisi. He said years and years ago, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. And it's a great quote. What he's getting at there is that we should not just be people who say things with our mouths. We should be people who back that up with our lives and live this out in our lives. So he's saying, preach the gospel at all times with your life. If necessary, use words. Here's what I just would add to that. Words are necessary. Words are incredibly necessary. And that actually is even more the case today because Christians have been so effective as salt and light over the generations that they've changed cultural norms, that many people in our world have some disposition of care and concern for others. And because that's true, words are all the more important in the day and age in which you and I live. In addition to words, a distinctive Christian presence also involves a distinct hope. A distinct hope. There's a distinct hope that you and I have for the people that we serve and the people that we care for. 
So these acts of tangible care for people, they're, they're right and good. We should do many of them. We hopefully will do many of them together as a church. But they are not, in and of themselves, the distinct benefit that Christians can bring to the world. And we need to be constantly asking ourselves, as we are serving people, what is my hope for this man or woman? What is my hope for this image bearer of God who is before me, who I am seeking to serve or care for in some way? Is my hope that they will have a good and full life? That's a good hope for someone. It's just not a distinctively Christian hope for someone. A distinctively Christian hope for another person has everything to do with that person's relationship with God and being reconciled to God as their creator. Caring for someone, of course, has everything to do with what they experience in this life, but a distinctively Christian hope also has everything to do with what this man or woman experiences for eternity. And if we abandon a perspective that includes a person's relationship with God and abandons thinking about what their eternity looks like, then we will have lost in that moment a distinctively Christian presence in the world. So distinct words, distinct hope. The last one I want to mention is just a distinct result. And this one actually comes right from the mouth of Jesus in, in these words, in this text. What is the result of his disciples living as salt and light in the world? What will happen? How will they know that's happening? Well, it's that people see their good works and they give glory to God their Father. They give glory to God. And that's a huge distinction. See, our our ultimate aim as Christians is not just that the world becomes a better place. I I would argue, I would propose that the world becoming a better place is a really critical byproduct of living this way. It's just not the ultimate aim. The aim, the focus, is so that people who see our good works would recognize God for who he is and would honor God for who he is because they have seen those good works. So these things are at least some of of what it means to be a distinctive presence in the world. And I I think this is just an important thing for us to continue to wrestle with over this month and even beyond that. It's not that other humanitarian efforts aren't worthwhile and aren't good. They are. And I think we should rejoice and we should praise God when we see people who bless and serve other people for whatever reason they do it. I think we should be excited about that and we should celebrate that. But there is something distinct that only God's people can bring. And what Jesus is going to say here in the Sermon on the Mount is first to his disciples and then as, as, by extension to us. He's saying, bring that. You Christians, bring that. Not just what others can demonstrate by their goodwill. Not just what people can, can accomplish by the common grace of God. But what you alone, follower of Jesus, can accomplish because of the enabling and sustaining power of God's own spirit and God's own son. That's the distinctive salt, the distinctive light of Jesus. One more distinction that I think is foundational for our pursuit of being salt and light, and really then foundational to our discussions about mercy and justice issues. If you were to keep on reading in Matthew chapter 5, just a couple more verses down to Matthew 5, verse 20, you would hear Jesus say to his disciples that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That is not a challenge for you to accept. 
That is not a resolution for you to make. It's not as though we can just decide that we're going to work harder and do better than the Pharisees did. What Jesus is getting at there, what he'll make more clear later, and what the apostles reflecting back on this makes make very clear, is that we cannot be righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven by our own efforts. But therein lies the real distinctive contribution of Christianity to the world. We can't, and so Jesus did. He is the righteous one. And it's through his death, it's through his resurrection, that he causes his righteousness to count on our behalf, to count for our record, so that by our faith in him, you and I might actually enter the kingdom of heaven. It's just not going to be through our own efforts. It's going to be through Jesus. If we resist that and live our lives as though we can be righteous by our own efforts, we will burn ourselves out or we'll quit or we'll begrudgingly do the things that we're supposed to do. But none of that is distinctively Christian. Right? You don't need Jesus to undertake a heroic effort, burn out, and quit. You don't need Jesus to, to check some boxes of things that you feel like you're supposed to do for whatever reason. But we absolutely need Jesus to live as salt and light in the world. And we absolutely need Jesus to become a people of mercy and justice in the world. And Jesus, this same Jesus, he calls us to a high bar. You know, we don't enter his kingdom by our own efforts, but he does call us to live exactly this kind of righteous life. And the paradox of it all, and this is so important for us as we think about this month together in our pursuits of mercy and justice, the paradox is that because we can't be righteous on our own, we are then free to run hard after Jesus in a genuinely righteous life. One more thing just to put to you as we close. Probably will happen to you this month. Probably has already happened to you many times in your life. It will happen again. If you're like me, as you pursue living this way, you will discover that you have within you some terrible motives for serving people. Terrible motives for serving other people. And it really is, I would, I would propose, the pursuit of living this way that exposes just how bad our motives really are. We don't really know how bad our motives are until we try this out and then are exposed for why we really are doing it. Some kind of self-gratification or some kind of feeling, some kind of selfish motivation that's tied up in there. We don't serve out of love. We serve out of obligation. We don't serve out of mercy. We serve because we think it's something we're supposed to do. There's this crazy and ugly mixture of motives in my own heart where on any given day I can be moved to tears because of compassion I have for another person. And then I can wake up the next day and just have a hard time finding an ounce of love in my heart for people. So let me encourage you, even though it might sound odd to use the word encourage, let me encourage you this morning. That is the real life experience of wrestling with the motives of your heart as you seek to live this outward kind of life. So don't quit. Don't wait until all of those sinful motives are rooted out because that will never happen. Instead, this month and always, let's join together in that pursuit, expecting that as we do, our bad motives are going to be exposed along the way. Because here's the good news of the gospel. The beauty for us and the beauty for those that we seek to care for in our world 
is that because Christianity is not about our efforts of mercy and justice, but is about the mercy and justice of Jesus, we can try and we can fail miserably and we can try again as we invite other people to do exactly the same thing. We can extend the very same mercy of Jesus that we ourselves have received, that we ourselves are so dependent upon. So as people dependent on the mercy of Jesus, may Jesus make his mercy known through us. And as salt and light, may the world see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Amen. And pray for us. Jesus, you have got to do work in our heart to make us fruitful and effective in this. We recognize our terrible mixture of motives. Many of us do. Many of us will have those continually exposed this month and always. As you expose them, show them to us that we might repent, that we might grow, and and that we might actually be transformed to serve out of a heart of mercy and love. Jesus, we are aware that there are obstacles and hindrances in our heart that prevent us from living this way as a lifestyle, and we desperately want to be people who live this way as a lifestyle not just for a month. So please break up what is hard in our heart. Please open our eyes again to see how beautiful your mercy toward us in Jesus is, that we might love and cherish your mercy so much that we can't help but extend it to other people, and that that would be what propels and sustains our pursuit of these, of serving people, being a benefit in the world, of of serving these causes that exist in our world today. Lead us and guide us, we pray. And as weak people who are dependent upon you and your mercy, we come again to your table this morning asking that you'd meet us and strengthen us and renew us by your grace. pray that in your name. Amen. This table is a picture of the mercy of Jesus.